Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Isotope. We craft innovative audio products that inspire and enable people to be creative. Visit isotope.com for more info. This episode is also brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Also, I want to take a second to tell you about something I'm very, very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and, of course, hanging out. You know, this industry is all about relationships. And think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can not only help you with inspiration and motivation, but also with potential professional collaborations? I've seen a lot of professional collaborations come from the summit in the past. And speaking of networking and relationships, there's no other event where you'll get to learn from and hang out with some of the very best in the production business. I mean, you could go to something like NAM, but good luck getting more than five minutes with your hero. At this, you actually will get to hang out, like hang out, hang out. And just a few of this year's instructors are Andrew Wade, Kerpaloo, Blasco, Taylor Larson, Billy Decker, Kanan Kevin Cherko, Jesse Cannon, and more. Seriously, this is one of the best and most productive events you will ever go to. So if that sounds like something that's up your alley, go to urmsummit.com to find out more. All right, now that that's out of the way... I just want to thank you guys for showing up to listen to this podcast. And I want to say welcome back because I've been gone for, what, six weeks now? Six weeks since the last episode. I know some of you guys may have gotten worried that we were done or something like that. But I just want you to know that once a year for about a month or five weeks or six weeks, I take a break from podcasting. And it's in order to recharge the batteries. Last year, we had a bunch of Dear Whoever episodes like Dear Kerpaloo, Dear Mary Zimmer. This year, we just decided to, to just put on the brakes because we have so much going on. We didn't want to half-ass the podcast. And uh, so we took a brief little break, but now coming back hard with season four of the URM podcast, believe it or not, I, uh, it's hard for me to believe. And this episode is one that I could have only dreamt about doing at the very beginning. We've got two people on here that I've been looking up to for ages. One of them has been on the podcast before, one of them hasn't. We've got both Machine and Chris Adler. And if you don't know who they are, I mean, most of you will. You don't need an introduction for most of you. But just in case you don't know who they are, Machine's a famed producer, engineer, and a mix and masterer, and has worked with, of course, Lamb of God, but also a ton of other projects, such as Clutch, 
Crowbot, Fallout Boy, uh, Mindless Self-Indulgence, and many stellar artists. And not just that, he's helped start the careers and mentor some of today's best and most luminary metal producers and mixers like Will Putney, Josh Wilbur, Zach Cervini. I mean, this guy is a fucking legend and so cool to talk to. And then we also have the mighty Chris Adler, who, of course, is the drummer from Lamb of God since their inception in 1994. He's also worked with various bands like Protest the Hero, Testament, and even won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance for his work on Megadeth's Dystopia album. He's also a well-known entrepreneur, uh, the business brains behind Lamb of God, and just a very impressive guy that I've always wanted to get to pick the brain of, and now I got the chance. This is a long podcast, but a great one. It was a great conversation where we talk all about the making of Sacrament, how Machine helped Lamb of God define the sound that would then become what we know as the huge badass band Lamb of God, as well as just entrepreneurial entrepreneurial wisdom that I think musicians and engineers at all levels could benefit from. This is just a great episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So without further ado, here are Machine and Chris Adler. Chris Adler, Machine, welcome to the URM podcast. Hey there. Hello. Lovely to be here. So so before we started recording, we were talking about GarageBand and cheat codes and kids using it for, uh, you know, to make their own music. Uh, you know what? Uh, just to finish off that convo real quick, I don't actually think that it's a cheat code because anything that gets kids thinking about music, creating music, being creative, that's good in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah. what I was kind of spitting yeah. the scene was like, I, I, I see, you know, the, the ease in using it um, even to create without necessarily creating it but in that it is kind of a real generic kind of a starter uh product you know my daughter in the back seat of the car you know pressing here and here and here she doesn't understand the melody but she'll correct this and change that and then dad listen to this and i'm just you know i'm looking back at her like holy shit like what <laughs> how'd you do that and you know she's feeling really proud about it and now she's kind of more interested in kind of digging in further is does she play any instruments i've tried to teach her uh, and she's not bad um <laughs> uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe on my level uh <laughs> at, at playing drums um she's also in uh, piano lessons and, and that kind of stuff so yeah i'm definitely trying to encourage that for her <laughs> although if she ever gets into a band i'll be I know. Oh, so bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I have like one kid. I, I, my girl is like so legitimately talented, has no interest in doing me in going to vocal lessons, being in a one of these like bands at like a school of rock type of any of this stuff like that I could give to her. Right. But just uh, like schools it. I mean, she came out of the womb with like perfect pitch. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And now, oh, just like <laughs> all pop stuff, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm pretty Katie sure my, Perry, my dog's Iggy Azalea. A, a cheerleader you know? and a rap. <laughs> that's, that's the way it goes. I think all rock stars have daughters. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ike likes Upon a Burning Bodies, Turned Down for What with Ice T. 
which I, which I, which I did, where they're in like a strip club and they're like, you know, fucking rock stars. Congratulations on that. (laughs) Yeah. Life, life achievement unlocked. Do do you think that it's a genetic thing or do you think it's just how they're brought up? Because my dad was a musician too. um, And I was, you know, surrounded by it. It didn't even seem, it didn't even make sense to go into anything but music just because, you know, I was like in doc, it's like growing up into a cult, except music, (laughs) (laughs) basically, if you want to get right down to it. I think there's something to that, Um, you know, environmental versus, you know, the kind of what's passed down. Um, I certainly see my daughter uh, being very creative in different ways. Uh, She's you know, ahead of her field in, you know, art and, and stuff like that. But obviously it's very difficult for me as a drummer with a drum set set up in the dining room uh, to give lessons. Um, she's, you know, come on, dad, let's you know do something else or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, she sees it as kind of, well, that's been done. You, you got that. Yeah. You know, what am I, what am I going to do? Um, it's certainly in that kind of, task of prevailing in, in the business certainly would give her the advantage uh, to continue with it. But um, I think just like all kids, I mean, you guys know, everybody knows you, you grow up and it's like, whatever my dad is doing, you know, I'm going to rebel against that. Like my parents yeah. don't smoke, so I'm going to smoke. Um, I, you know, I'm going to. Or my parents party, so I'm going to be straight edge. Exactly. It, it's always the rebellion, which, like I was saying earlier, I'm pretty sure she's going to end up being a you know, cheerleader into rap. But, you know, she has some genetic, obviously, well, I would think so. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure she does. Uh, doing it. Um, sure she does. But there's rebellion that every kid has to get away. And I think that's why I ended up kind of where I was with my, you know, my parents are listening to the Beatles. They're not really into music. My mom's very... Uh, focused on getting us into creative activities, very supportive, and both were. But it was more of a, I think at the time, probably like, can I get this kid into a music lesson for an hour <laughs> so I can go do some shit I want to do? Uh, but <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's definitely there. Um, yeah. For them, it's for them to choose. And that, that's been a weird thing because, uh, well, for me anyway, with my daughter, um, you know, everything I do is, come on, dad, turn off the boy music. Yeah. And, but <laughs> at, at the same time, she'll pull up Spotify and put on some, you know, I don't even know this, uh, the, you know, Katy Perry or there's yeah. this, uh, I, I don't know what the name of the guy is, but, you know, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time. Uh, <laughs> song kind of, of the year. <laughs> right. So, I mean, she's embedded uh, in you know, kind of everything that I do and is very familiar. But in that, I think we all rebel naturally in that genetic way against <laughs> what our parents do. I have that. I have that exact story. But but uh, as far as rebelling, but to like give my little spin on this conversation of of influence, like uh, nature and nurture is what we what makes up the, our, our personality and our musical DNA and, and, uh, there's absolutely a nature, a bio, a biological thing your brain is born with that makes you predisposed to being talented in music. And that, that same thing with athletes or whatever, or scholars, 
And then nurture is, you know, your influences that in the, when you hit the real world. And um, as I was just discovering what I was liking, the monkeys or the Beatles or the, the then Kiss and the friendly stuff, there was a constant progressive music style happening all around me, classical music, constant, really technical playing, very, you know, I can't tell you the key. I never learned theory, so I cannot tell you the insane key structures and time signatures that my dad would be rehearsing and I was exposed to. But what he was a musician, as a musician, but that uh, right, that nurturing um, played into my growth of my brain and my DNA. Where I sort of, when it came to working with bands like King Crimson and Lamb of God and really progressive bands. I, I didn't feel nervous. I didn't feel at a place I, I could I could just roll with that. It's in your and DNA. That was, and that was in, no, not my DNA. That was in my nurturing. Got it. The nature, nature versus nurture. Nature is you're, you're born with, uh, you know, an ability to music, ability to hear pitch. Some people can't, you know, are born, they, they'll, they'll always be tone deaf. It, but, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much a thing that I've realized uh, with my daughter is that, you know, I've got this drum set here. I've got guitar amp sitting next to it, acoustic guitar, uh, piano. The more I push it, the less she's interested. Yeah, right. While, while I tried to give her lessons, and yeah, I don't know how to give lessons because I never had one, but um, I was able to teach her some stuff and able for her to you know kind of play along to Gloria, Gloria. Um, <laughs> And, and you can see the smile, you can see the confidence in it. But the more I pushed the concept, the less interested she was. So I basically yeah, stopped and, and just just let her kind of watch the whole thing. And now I find her seeking it. This is what I do. This is what I do. I do. It's like the secret lab. It's like you. There's a lot of stories about geniuses and scientists, <laughs> like that that uh, had parents. That like would go to the lab and it was just a forbidden place for the children, like or whatever it was, or the editing room. And it was a forbidden, like back in the days in the 50s and 60s, it was a forbidden place for children. And they just weren't allowed in. And then they wanted that so bad. When it came time for them to become adult, they wanted into that laboratory so bad. So now I'm like reverse psychologizing that shit on my exactly. kids. It's like, exactly. I'm like, exactly it. I'm like, no, I'm going to, I got a session. I'm like, that's really smart, do this. actually. <laughs> I do that. And I'm really not even in, encouraging them. And then they're, you know, you know, my dad did this and my dad did that. And, and, uh, <laughs> that's how it works. I, I can, yeah. I can totally confirm the rebellion thing is real. Uh, I've actually learned or, or the secret access to what you cannot have as a yeah. kid. The well, desires you want as a child of things you cannot have. The, like when you stuff. Yes. Oh, that. Oh, oh, I'm not allowed to smoke cigarettes. Oh, you're not allowed. Oh, you're not allowed in the studio. Well, oh, no, no. That's for adults. That's for adults and serious musicians. I learned something interesting recently, which is that, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that this rebellion thing that we've been talking about, that natural tendency, it's there. Uh, it's a natural thing that develops in kids because it's them starting to develop the skills that they're going to need in order to be able to actually leave the house at some point and fend for themselves. If they don't start doing that, 
you know, start like getting ready for that at some point, they'll never be able to get out there on their own and be an independent human. So the rebellion, even though it's irrational sometimes when teenagers do it or when kids do it, yeah. they're just, they're not thinking about how they're rebelling. It's just this natural instinct, but that's what it is. It's that independence um, that they're eventually going to really need starting to, you know, starting to rear its head. And I can tell you guys too that my dad pushed classical music on me really, really hard as a kid. Um, mm. He would make me do violin and piano, and he would sit there with me and uh, like enforce that shit. And I hated it so much that mm. uh, I think I went into metal <laughs> as, as a result, right. <laughs> so, just to spite him. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I did. That wasn't the reason in my mind that I went into it. Like I actually liked liked it but uh you know thinking back uh, i'm sure that that's what that was has to be yeah so yeah, i agree i mean it all comes i mean whether you believe in the you know philosophers or not it really comes and this may be a little crazy for this podcast but it comes down to this kind of Freudian thing of you know as a boy you fall in love with your mom and then when you realize that shit ain't gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> you, you go the other direction and as a girl the same way um it, it, it's kind of kind of set up uh to allow us to be individuals well i mean the uh the alternative just wouldn't work it, like you literally wouldn't be able to survive Right, unless you're the Partridge family. Yeah, yeah, and that's just kind of weird. So, (laughs) all right. So, so that said, um, so your parents were not musicians, but you still had music around you at all times. How did that lead to, you know, becoming a musician? To me or machine? No, to you, because I mean, machine Uh, had parent uh, musician parents, so that makes sense. My mom was a a member of the Oratorio Society, um, and has been. Uh, her whole life and loves the idea of uh, singing. So I had eight years of basically homeschooled singing lessons and then went into different uh, instruments. My dad um, was not particularly good at it, but uh, always joined kind of local local players in um, the plays or, uh, gosh, we not sure how... To describe it, kind of the local players of a stage show of some kind, uh, play a, a mimic of something that had been done prior. So they they were both artistically inclined. Uh, my mom was far better at what she did than my dad was, uh, but they they sought that out as well and were very supportive of everything that myself and my younger brother were doing as far as um, any kind of creative stuff. They weren't really stoked on the the, <laughs> the uh, for people who least, uh, for people who don't that came over for band for practice. people who don't know chris chris's younger brother is in lamb of god his name is willie adler that's right yes. he's a subcontractor <laughs> oh stop no but i mean i mean it's not a given i don't think everyone who's listening to this podcast knows like willie's your brother sometimes that works out well sometimes it's it's a just a curse. I forget, dude. I forget. I forget is your brother because you guys are so different. We are. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I've asked my parents at least 20 times. Like, come on, guys. Tell me the truth. <laughs> I was adopted, right? <laughs> well, are you more like them or is he more like them? Well, obviously. Yeah, if you, say, if you think you're the one that was adopted, then he's more like them. All right. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, he is exactly like my dad. I'm exactly like my mom. But uh, one of the funny things that I've had a conversation with many people about is that I always tell people, like, Willie has all the talent that you could ask for. Um, he's an he's incredible uh, musician. And he does all kinds of weird stuff that is just, like, off the charts of kind of the normal process, which I, is what I love about working with him, especially in metal where it's kind of a defined thing and mm -hmm. it is this and we use these scales and power chords and all that shit. Um, at the same time, I have very little talent, but incredible motivation to do it where he's super lazy. He'll sit on his couch and, and you know, write paradise city and then, you know, get a hamburger and go to bed. Like, mm -hmm. man, that is I, the curse of talented people is, uh, is the work ethic part. It really right. is. And so him and me together, while I am absolutely insecure about uh, my playing, I'm motivated because it's, it's what I want to do. So I'll yank his ass out of bed and say, dude, we can do some shit together. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of been the relationship the whole time. Did you get, how, did, how did the metal thing come about? It, was that well, in like childhood or... It was, yeah. I mean, we grew up, I think the first album I ever bought was Thriller uh, on vinyl, which I still That's have. That's my if favorite Slayer album. <laughs> if anybody wants to buy it. Uh, but Wait, are you not Michael Jackson? No, I'm just yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah he's, he's fucking with you. Um, but from there... <laughs> it's not really my favorite Slayer album. <laughs> from there, uh, you know, we get into this kind of skateboard culture, uh, this tape trading kind of thing. And the coolest part about that for me, and the thing I remember, and this is a tangent, I'll get back to it, but um, as my mom allowed us to subscribe to Thrasher magazine, she also went and on her own pulled the... Uh, kind of the back pages out of it, the uh, instructions on how to build a half pipe. And she built a half pipe in our backyard. Wow. For us to skate by herself. That's dedication. My dad didn't help. Nobody knew. Uh, I mean, I knew there was something being built in the backyard, but I didn't know it was going to be that. And then she put a chain across the middle of it so that, you know, people couldn't come over in the middle of the night and skate on it and stuff. And, you know, she, yeah, she was really in... Uh, to what we were doing, regardless of what it was. But back to the point, in that kind of skate culture, even though it was, you know, suburban and kind of white bread, uh, there was a lot of kind of tape trading. And, you know, I was into Michael Jackson and then I kind of found Aerosmith for a minute. And then I started getting these tapes of, um, you know, a, a real good mix of stuff. Uh, but the one, obviously, that stuck out for me was uh, this Megadeth song on, on one of these tapes. And it was, you know, seven seconds, TSOL, you know, SOD, and then this Megadeth thing. And I had been very, as much as a white suburban kid could be, uh, into this kind of punk rock vibe with Cro-Mags and, and stuff like that. But I think when I heard SOD and Megadeth, that's that's really where... It went from Michael Jackson pretty much straight uh, to Megadeth. How old and, were you? Yeah. Uh, this had to be, I was in sixth grade, so whatever age that is, uh, 12. 
Okay, so okay, so you got into the metal thing around the same age that I did, but machine that never happened for you, right? No, yeah, no, still hasn't happened to this day. I'm gonna send you a tape. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, uh, I, I actually, I actually did not believe when I met Chris Adler there was such a thing as instrumental metal. He's like, well, I'm really? like, what are you listening to right now, Chris? He's like, I'm also listening to instrumental metal. I'm like, no. That doesn't exist. That's not possible. And like, <laughs> stop, stop fucking with me. Come on. And it's like, no. No, like we get, well, like I go to his house for the first time and there's, yes, in fact, instrumental metal playing. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it about it that you didn't believe was real? Oh, no, no, no. No, I don't believe it's, not that I don't believe it's real. It's that metal by design fulfills things for people's musical needs. I'm like, I'm a good music person. I like metal. I like Lamb of God. I like, I like, I like handpicked metal bands, right? But um, I've never been, I'm not, I'm not on the cusp of what's happening in metal. I don't subscribe to metal blogs or that. My, mm -hmm. It doesn't hold my interest as a genre, you know, over some others. Um, not that when something brilliant comes out, well, Meshuggah or, you know, I'm not just like as blown away as the next guy. That could be in any, you know, that could be in anything. I love what's great. But, but so if you look at like culture and you know how I like to like to call myself a sociologist of music, when you look at culture and when I met Chris and I went to, I went to see them play for the first time and saw them with these bands like Kill Switch Engage and do that. And I kind of was really researching. I just understood, I understood the, you know, the fulfillment factor that metal gives to, to its, its audience, its audience that, that really live metal lifestyle, metal culture. You know, it's the muscle car in you. It's the, it's energy. It's the, it's the ticking of numbers and math where you sneak in melody. It's body contact. It's like guy on guy. It's like, it's like wrestling. <laughs> it's like, like I've, I've, I've never, dude, I, to this day have never been in an actual mosh pit ever. I, 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 this, I am a pit analyzer. I, <laughs> I'm a, I, I have this idea that maybe like we could like pad me up in like a helmet, football pads, <laughs> and then like send me into a Slayer pit and film it. And just for like more of my research, but right. I have never, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I've never, no, I've never been in a pit, but, but, um, no, the point of all this, not being funny, the point of all this is that, no, those, like, the heavy music, like, and when I say metal, I mean metal here, guys, not Five Finger Death Punch. I mean, metal, metal means to me what Chris Adler and Lamb of God taught me metal was, was double kicks and screaming vocals. I'm not talking about hard rock. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. Chris, Chris needed to explain to me, this is metal. Like, it's not this hair stuff. It's not that, that... But when we're real metal of the day, man, that meant there wasn't going to be a lot of singing and there was going to be shit tons of double kicks and blast beats. Like that was, I'm talking, when I say metal, that's what I'm saying, metal. That energy, that energy and the things it does for people, um, yeah, it's a real, it's, it, 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 and it will forever carry 
thousands and millions and millions of people, which is what's amazing about the genre. It will forever, ever do that. And it'll never go away. And when other music forms come and go, and, and metal will do so less so because of these things that it fulfills for people is awesome. It's awesome. That's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of the genre, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think just by nature. I mean, I had to say to you, Chris, I had to say to you coming into this project, I had to say, hey, let's say I was the best producer from another galaxy. Like I killed it on planet, <laughs> on planet Zoltan, right? Like I was the man, right? And then what would you remember? I was like, I had you give me homework. I was like, give me like the two best production modern day metal records. Give me the two records that define your band. Give me, and then there was another category, which I forgot what it was. But I was like, I wanted your help really, really learning about why you were so successful prior to me meeting you and what's important about it and what I could do from my perspective to just kick fucking ass with it. Just take it to another level, you know? So, Chris, I have a question for you. Based on what Machine just said, I, I do have a question for you. So, you guys worked with Devin before him, right? We did. Okay, yes. so uh, De- just recently De- prior, yeah. Yeah, and he, he's like a metal genius, basically. Um, so, all right, so you're a real metal dude who's been into it since the age of 12. Like, you worked with, like, Devin Townsend, like yeah, they, all that stuff. Yeah. And I remember I remember the vibe about the band back in those days. What made like what drew you to this dude who was not part of the scene? Right. Um, well that certainly feeds into what he was just saying. Um, we love the idea of at the time, you know, I actually no one in the band had ever heard of Devin Townsend. And I'm gonna put an asterisk here in that that didn't really work out so well. But uh, I was a huge fan of what he had done with the recent Soilwork album uh, that had been completed and really felt like this is the guy that can... It's, it's a crazy story, man, because at the time, certainly at the time of working with Devin, none of us... I talked to guys into working with Devin, but no, no one ever really understood the role of a producer. Uh, basically, everybody thought, that was um, an engineer. Just turn the knobs, make it sound like that last shit you did. Don't tell me <laughs> how to do my job uh, because there's no way, and I probably have this as a quote in Machine's head, uh, there's no way you're going to tell me how to do what I do better than I already do it. Wow. I know, they were so fucking wow, brutal to me, man, when they first met me. Holy shit. You have, you have no idea the shit, the shit <laughs> that piled on and, oh my, all of them. And it took so long to break those walls down. Uh, that's and that's yeah, extreme. I mean, we, we broke machine in half on Ashes of the Wake and I had oh, to yeah. I didn't want to, co- I didn't want to come back. And take him to dinner and convince him that, okay, we now understand a little bit about the things that you were able to get in on the last record that have helped us out. And we- yeah, AL, I wanted out. I, I, Ashes of the Week, I was done. I was like, oh, I'm good. I don't want to do another record. Yeah, he was the first guy that we reached out to to produce a record. He said, no. And I called him up. I was like, what's going on? He said, like, I can't deal with this anymore, man. <laughs> like, it's so brutal with you guys. Like, 
just to get one idea across. It's like 10 days of crying in my hotel room. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But at the same time, the the few things that he did um, was able to inject into ashes were the things that we realized very quickly when we took that on the road were the ones that, you know, made a huge difference in, in our uh, security of, uh, or insecurity, I guess, of thinking that we knew exactly what we wanted to do. And B, it was, it's very hard to let somebody else in. And uh, right. it, it was the I same remember. with Devin. Uh, when Devin came to the studio, we were doing Ash, um, palaces, picked him up at the airport, brought him to the studio, and we were already set up in the studio. And we said, okay, uh, have a seat in the control booth. We're going to play the album that <laughs> you, we want to play. You, you, you mic'd it up for him before yes. he even arrived. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have, have a seat. Wow. We're going to play this album from front to back. And then you can help us do it again and just turn the knobs and make it sound really awesome. Um, <laughs> That's all there is to it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh, so we had no idea what a, you know, a producer really was. But Back to the question. The reason that after, well, the Devon experience didn't go particularly well um, in that there was a lot of um, kind of technical issues and computers fucking up and not the right studio and him really not being an engineer, more of a producer, which we didn't understand the difference at the time. But the reason we ended up uh, even taking the meeting with Machine was because after that, I really was hell bent on finding someone out of the scene that could understand it and have us stick out a little bit because they didn't understand the scene. Um, that doesn't mean nice. I wanted to um, push a machine in, in a different direction, but the concept was, you know, if every Andy Sneap mix sounds the same, if, if metal just sounds like this, how do we get out of this box? That's actually and a really ballsy move because I'm sure you're. Yep. I'm sure you know that like when a lot when guys try to produce metal records that and they don't understand how it works. A lot of the times, it they come out horrible. Like really good producers too will you know like guys that excel at hard rock or excel at pop or something. They'll take on that one metal band and it'll just be a disaster. And that happens right. over and over again. So that's a very ballsy move. And it's weird because there was a meeting we had in a hotel lobby in New York City. Uh, and it was our first meeting. That was our first meeting, right. Yeah, I think it was, it was Mark uh, Morton and myself that went up uh, to meet Machine in order to kind of, I don't know, interview for the Ashes of the Wake uh, producer. So the band, the band is first signed to a major label deal. It just got on So Epic. they could have had any metal producer they wanted at that moment. Yeah. In fact, in fact, the label said, um, "We're gonna have you do this with Bob Rock in Hawaii." Holy shit! And it was like it was like uh, <laughs> uh, that doesn't sound bad, but I don't know. Like let's let's think about this because I could end up being you know sad but true all the time. But machine shows up in the lobby of this hotel where we're all supposed to like sit down and have dinner and drinks or whatever, and he's got this like cat in the hat, uh, hat on and just totally, you know, Mark and I are in camo shorts and black t-shirts and here's this guy's like, Hey, and we can do this and we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. 
um, definitely sold himself well, but it was definitely scary in the way that you're talking about where I don't know that this is going to work. But the one thing that he said during that meeting that really kind of caught my attention was his experience with sound design and loving the band Prodigy. And I'm a huge fan of that band. I love the technical aspects in the same way that I was a huge fan of what Devin was doing with soil work and and just the kind of ear candy kind of stuff that even a a shit song, it sounds amazing. Um, And so we walked out and in the end, I I don't think that was a very positive meeting. I think we actually told him is like, you know, how the fuck do you think you're going to be able to help us? You don't even know what the fuck is going on. Um, That's what Mark said. Yeah, but I loved the idea (laughs) of bringing in somebody from totally the outside and giving it a go. At the time, I agree with what you're saying that, you know, it's obviously a risk. But at the time for us, it's not necessarily a risk. It's it's a hope. So it would have been a bigger risk in some ways to go with on the safe path. Yeah. Yes. And we would have just been everybody else to my to my. Can I just add a little to your? <laughs> All right. There was. Pepper in some details. There was a few other connection points that happened in that meeting, you know, creatively, you know, like as well. You, you like calamari as well, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there, there, definitely, there definitely was. It's like I kind of, uh, we talked a lot about, you know, uh, there be I, a kind of a standard of what metal sounded like. Um, cause basically what was happening at this time, Al was, um, heavy bands were getting on K rock, which is the biggest radio station in New York. So these major labels were going, you know, where metal only lived on Roadrunner and metal blade and these labels, major labels were going, Ooh, we should sign metal because someone one day is going to take over, the reins of like, you know, Metallica and, you know, and one of these incredibly talented bands are going to develop. And that's, and so a lot of bands, so there was a lot of interest in this. So I talked a lot about uh, this sort of standard that I was hearing about what the, the, the current, like the current relative metal bands were putting out, your kill switch engages and stuff and, and kind of pieced apart took apart what I didn't think was really cool about it at all. And also I didn't think it was necessarily metal. I see it was just, t- you know, how, you know, how drums sound like drum machines. And I, I had this whole list and I could go through it, but, but I, I think everyone in the band took a, a, whoa, he just said all that, took a step back and, and then thought, well, that's, there's a lot of truth in that. And, and, you know, and if we figure this out together and trust this guy, maybe we could do our own version of it. And back to what you said in the, the verse thing, Chris, you know, we get our own unique version of this. But yeah, I really connected. I was like, you know, drums are all like this. No one cares fucking about vocals. Bass guitar is so secondary. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, what's wrong with it? It's like, what's wrong with the picture? It's like, Vocals are so like the last thought at the end. They're buried. You know, I just went through the whole list of things that I was like, it doesn't have to be that way to be heavy and metal, heavy metal. So basically you guys were on the same page about everything that was wrong and 
the popular metal productions mm-hmm. of the day. No, no, but but Only we figured it. But we figured it out. <laughs> we figured it out and compromised our own way. You're gonna see that and nail the mix, and that kind of gave us our unique sound. So it all worked. You follow me? Absolutely. I think it's so. All right. So you guys but it worked was very, very uncomfortable. The, yeah, um, I want to get into that a little. Like, so was what was uncomfortable about it? Well, we love the idea of being able to stand out in some form or fashion uh, from everything that was going on. But it's very difficult to allow someone in and start saying, you know, what if we, you know, extended that chorus or what if we did this verse again and and that kind of stuff. Conceptually, the idea was great. In practice, it was really very difficult. And we butted heads to the point of really when we wanted Machine to come back for the next record, he didn't want to do it. And there was there really wasn't a lot of comfort in that first record because even though we kind of romanticized the idea, fear, it was hard to accept where it was going. Um, Cause in the end, truly we just wanted to sound like the cool metal bands that were out there. Um, but we knew, I think everybody knew what, enough. What do, you think was, that, what, what do you think was hard about that? Yeah, I'm actually very curious because, you know, some, hey, hey. Hey, Al, yes. question. What do you think? Do you, How different do you think it was? How, I mean, as a, a guy listening to metal bands, that record comes out from your outside perspective. How was it so out of the box that it was, yes, wasn't absolute, metal? Hundred, it wasn't metal. It, no, it, it was totally cool? metal. It was absolutely metal, but it had a totally different, uh, it had a totally different aesthetic than what was, I guess, the norm to a degree. Right. It, it wasn't, it didn't sound like, the Andy Sneap, Colin Richardson records, right. which I think all had they sounded great in their own ways. Did, did but, can I ask you another question? Did yes. Slipknot do that for you? Yes. Did Meshuggah do that for you? Yes. Did System of a Down do that for you? Yep. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Until it happens, so yeah. it's like this kind of risk, and you know, where do we want to be? Are we? What are we doing? Like you sign up for the idea, it's difficult to swallow in the process. And then you put out something that's, you know, like, like you guys are talking about, slightly off the path and, you know, it's sink or swim. Holy shit. You know, how are we going to do this? Is it going to work? And, you know, it, it took off. And it was the gamble. At the same time, I think both sides were fighting really hard the whole time. And that conflict, actually, in the same way that the conflict exists within the band itself, um, created... Uh, a, a product that couldn't have been what it is without yeah, the fight. You're right. Sadly, you're so right. And and you can basically that. I mean, and that's Lamb of God. Period. Whether I'm there or not, you just you guys, you're going. You're all going to do that to each other. And that's how you come out with your unique, amazing stuff. There's a, I a mean, very I, interesting dynamic in the band where. Yeah, <clears throat> I wouldn't say we hate each other, but. Um, it is a challenge uh, always. We are kind of this who's alpha in this discussion all the time, like every single thing. And it's difficult, um, but as we've, we've found in our inability to be, uh, well, I should say ability to be as stubborn as we are, that, you know, I'm not going to quit first. Uh, so we just keep taxing each other so hard. Um, yeah, man, point, like going to point back. Of, like losing friendships. 
but going back for sacrament something more creative after after doing ashes of the wake and like chris coming into new york and talking to me and really signing up for sacrament and then my my pre-mental prep for going into sacrament was similar to that of i think what i would have done to myself for psychological warfare like if I knew that I was going to go to war, get captured and get my head fucked with and twisted and, and be, and try to hold it together about being, trying to be gone insane every day. That was my like prep going in. So like, what I made you say yes? going to be crazy. Why'd you say yes then? I said yes because Chris uh, showed so much heart and proper intent and he sat down with his wife and he's like, "It's this is coming from all of us. He's like, look, dude, we did fight on last record and we were scared and we learned a lot and all these things, all these, I'm not going to cite the examples of who said what or who did what, all these things did so much for us. And it's like, we're a little chiller now. I promise you this. We are chiller now. We're not as afraid. We're we're ready to have more fun. We're ready to try more ideas, and we don't we realize that that doesn't mean you're going to ruin us anymore. At the, on the first record, we were we were, <laughs> you know, we didn't know, we didn't know. We were defending everything. It was da- everything, you know, everything was more scary. So no. we just got we we basically sacrament was like, right? Sacrament was like getting the first record right. Like uh, get it not right, but getting you know, it, completing completing some more of the concepts that that we were on about to make us to make us who we are as a team. You know, we all know of metal bands who have you know taken a risk on a record and it's completely backfired on them. So I definitely think that, especially with first having gotten onto the major label, and I like okay, so as an outsider you know, just a guy in a local band who listened to metal and was just starting to learn about production. Like, you know, I had a total outside, total outsider's perspective to, I remember the vibe about the band was, you know, people were, people were saying like, this is going to be like the next Pantera or something like they're like, that's how it was being pushed. So I can imagine the pressure to not fuck that up must've been tremendous and uh, and like I said, we all know of you know when these when metal bands take risks like that to go off the path. Sometimes they backfire in pretty spectacular ways. <laughs> they do. Yeah, um, I think the difference here was it, it wasn't so much uh, machines' input wasn't so much as to rewrite the song. It was you know okay. Is this what you call the chorus? Okay, can we do that just twice here, um, and then we'll come back down <laughs> into this and, and and that kind of thing. So it wasn't stuff that he was uh, forcing us to rewrite necessarily. It was a matter of uh, kind of arrangement that allowed uh, some kind of contagious vibe to it. Uh, but you know, as as we've written the songs prior to going in. Um, well, no, this is the way the song goes. Yeah. So it, it's difficult to have that objective opinion. But after Ashes, that's what we allowed to let go. Like, you can see this from a different view than we can, because we're in this room, you know, five days a week, six yeah. hours a day. And this is how the fucking song goes. Can you think of, you know, one? can you think of an example? Like, so you said that, so Machine came up 
with a lot of the ideas that then on the road translated with the audience in a way that blew your guys' minds. Can you guys think of one, like just one example of... I mean, yes. yeah, there's a huge example. Uh, uh, now you've got something to die for. Right. Now, now, dude, now you've got something to die for. First of all, I met Randy and there were rules, right? The rules were, uh, there were many rules, right? <laughs> what, many, many rules. First rule was I'll never do anything with a pitch, a screen pitch or sing. No way, absolutely not, never. The second rule was I will never repeat a lyric. I don't see the point in that. So punk rock. So this, he was reading in pre-production and now you've got something to die for was a line in a verse. That's how it started. And, and I heard that and I was like, look, and I was like, okay, I can't say, I can't say chorus. I can't say, I was like, I was like, um, I was like, I was like, Randy, there's something that really, really affected me and it's kind of punk rock and it changed my life. And I heard this guy go, fuck you, I won't do what you told me. Fuck you, I won't do what you told me. Fuck you, I won't do what you told me. And I was like, Randy, if you say now you've got something to die for and you say it again and then you say it again, you're going to have a, a, a reaction a fucking connection like you're not used to. I'm warning you. I'm like, if you do that, if you have the balls to do that, those words are going to connect like like starting a war. Yeah, and, I remember that exact conversation. And it took a long time and blah, blah, blah. And that's like, it wasn't something that he hadn't already written. No, no, it, it, was, it was a verse line. It was a verse line. So it was a matter of forming it, putting it in the right place and finding that ability to kind of bring it over and over, which we weren't adept at doing at all. Uh, we started out instrumental. We didn't have a singer. We didn't want a singer. The only reason we have a singer still is the guy that won't fucking leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in that, you know, he's got a shady situation to begin with. Um, you know, now telling him, you know, say, say what you want to say, but do it here and then do it again here. You know, it, it was quite a task. And yeah. did you guys, and basically, did you, when you recorded it, did you know that it was going to be this anthem basically, or did it, you figured it out when you were on the road? I, well, I did. Well, you knew. I mean, I'm wondering yeah. when they figured it out. Uh that's, that's tough. I remember exactly kind of how this went down. Um, we're, we're recording this, and, you know, Machine is not the most metalhead-looking dude uh, around and doesn't really kind of roll <laughs> roll with that vibe or lifestyle. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, he's telling us, he's like, let's, let's just try this. Like, it's, it's we don't have to record it. It's not going to stay. Nobody's going to hear it. Like, this is a non destructive process of what's going on. Let's just like demo this out and listen to it for a right. minute and kind Pretty of go much. over this. Being working with machine in the studio, um, certainly posed challenges to where we had kind of come up from and what we wanted to do. And now he's kind of championing this idea of this repeated chorus. And I don't mean that in a like, yeah, I think it'll be cool or whatever. I mean, the dude is like jumping up and down in a pony jumpsuit saying like, you guys got to, 
it's going to be amazing. There's going to be 10,000 people screaming it with you. It's going to be amazing. And we're just like, what the? F we, we play to like 14 people, dude. Like, <laughs> this is like, this isn't really what we do. And it was almost like going into that process was, it seemed almost like a favor to him at the time. Uh, That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so we definitely didn't realize it in the moment. Yeah. In fact, I, in fact, I think most of the guys, including myself, were a bit opposed to this kind of anthemic uh, concept, knowing that, you know, the 12 people that we play to normally, uh, the, you know, it, we're going to lose two of them because now we sold out to, you know, kind of have a sing-along. Uh, <laughs> and the other 10 were in the opening bands? <laughs> Probably, yeah, or their parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it hit uh, pretty direct. I think we got an offer for an OzFest tour uh, well, there shortly yeah. after. And, um, you know, I don't know what the distribution was, but we those the things that he was jumping up and down in the room about in a tracksuit uh, were exactly the things that hit in the way that he knew that they would, that we were not necessarily afraid of, but <clears throat> hesitant about going in that direction because it, it, potentially in where we had come from, that's the end of our credibility. Yeah. Right, right. And the difference between Ashes of the Wake and Sacrament is that they realized that the trust, they realized that there is a guy that could sneak this in into the context of what still appears brutal and heavy and dangerous. They realized I could put, I had my eye on the ball of that. They weren't sure at first on the first record, Ashes. But I think that was the thing. When you came to New York, you told me, it's like, oh, we get it now. We get it. We didn't lose anything. You, you, you snuck it in and it was real. And that was the right. perfect thing to say to me. Because that's, that's my job. I mean, that's it what was I the first time for. We understood what a producer is. Because uh, like I said, with Devin and then Ashes with Machine, it was basically the way you would think of an engineer just make the shit we've come up with sound great that's what a producer does right and when we saw those little things that he was able to kind of sneak in even though at the time like i said we thought we were probably just doing him a favor or <laughs> tired of arguing about it let's just fucking do it um <laughs> those were the little things that showed up and it was like oh shit there's like a mind change there where you realize like an objective opinion is necessary uh, because you're in this tiny little bubble where you know what you're doing. Everybody has the same point on the horizon. And it's very, very hard to let somebody come in and change that direction even slightly. Um, and we didn't know it until we saw these things that he fought us enough for to get in and then have that come back to us in the live setting. Machine, I have a question about how you, about your like mental process with this kind of stuff. Cause like, just to give you an example, like whenever I've done something in my life that has been successful, uh, like now the mix or whatever, like I've been able to see clearly how it would work, like in a very, 
I don't know. It's like almost mm-hmm. like being able to see the future, but like, <clears throat> like I knew yes. it was going to work. Like I knew exactly how it would work. And it's uh, like, yeah, I just saw it clearly and that it had to happen. I'm just wondering, like, so when you have these parts, um, when you're producing a record that like you have to get you're, you know it that much that you have to, like, fight for it that hard. Like, what's it like? Like, do you, like, are you seeing the future? Like, what, like what's it like in your head if you no, could try to describe it? That's a great question. And for every record I do, I need to see the end game before I start the game. Like, I, and if I don't, I'm very honest with the bands and I tell them I don't fully see it yet. And I often ask the bands for help, for like conceptual help. Like sometimes I walk in there and I, th- I think I may know the band really, really well or what it could be. And sometimes I'm like, mm, uh, I haven't got the whole thing. But I, I have to have, before I start, I, I have to have the whole end game in my mind. And you could ask any band I've worked with uh, about this and... And, uh, and then it's just the key of, you know, like a coach. These are our game plans. These are our plays. These are our things. Can we work them out and stick to them? And that's usually when you win. Those initial concepts and instincts are usually the right ones, you know? Uh, and, uh, yeah, for every—so, yes, Al, yes, that is the case, and that's for everything. Every type of, every type of band, every type of music— and I want every band to have their signatures, their things that are theirs and uniquely unique to them. And, uh, and uh, that's just the guy I want to be. I want to, you know, I want to look back on my career and see these different types of bands and different types of records and, and just know that I, I get it right. You know, I get it right most most of the time. Most all the time. I'm not. I don't bat a thousand, but um, I'm no, nobody up, does. I'm up there. I'm up there. I mean, I'm really up there for getting it right. You know, <laughs> nobody nobody bats a thousand. But so, but it's, yeah. But I I'm guessing that if you didn't see the end game perfectly clearly, like 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 it's real, there's no way that you could convince people like. You know, it's like Lamb of God, who were not. Well, sometimes. Well, sometimes I don't. I mean, most of the time I do because I got I've got a really fun animated personality, and I can be very manipulative and convincing and mind fucking. But <laughs> once in a while, like you know, like once in a while, I have a meeting with a band. I'm totally honest with them, and I don't get the gig because I've deliberately scared them off. You know, and that's okay. That's okay. Because I don't want to make marginal compromise records. So, so you're either like, whoa, kid's got some ideas and, and, and I'm not so threatened by the way he's saying them. Or some bands are just like, Mm-mm, this is too scary for us and I don't get those records. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, can't win them all. So, all right. So it's a success, uh, but it's a brutal experience. Um, Chris goes to meet with you and talks you into doing the next one, says that they're chilled out and, uh, let's do it again. What, let's talk about, let's talk about the next one. Was it, was it actually chilled out? If I could take a minute, uh, before we 
go into that, which sure. I'm sure wasn't quite as chilled out as I <laughs> <laughs> uh, told him, but I was hopeful for him taking the gig. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I've definitely learned and what Machine kind of hinted on there uh, is that in that there basically were no rewrites of anything that we did. Um, there wasn't him coming in saying, no, I need a new part. I need a you know new intro. I need a new outro or stuff like that. What I've learned is, and not knowing, again, admittedly what a producer really does other than what a engineer does at the time, is that the producer's role really is almost like a, a, a shrink. Um, you have to have the people skills and in the way he said, you know, manipulate things into a, a certain way. Um, that's really the skill of, uh, you know, what I've found in going forward working with other people. It's, it's about how you can kind of worm your way into the mindset and figure it out via the relationships. It's not about the song. It's not about turning knobs. It's about how you cr are able to uh, create the vision that you come into the project with. And sometimes, uh, you know, obviously, it's not going to work if it's too far apart. But if it's within, you know, I don't know, a 20% margin or something like that, the producers that we've worked with, it's, it's been all the same. Uh, it, it's, it's a matter of getting inside the, the heads of the guys, knowing, or girls, uh, knowing where everybody wants to go and finding a way to get each of them mm -hmm. to agree that this meets close enough to where we want it to go. And then when you get all five, the whole thing kind of changes into an, a form of acceptance of right. what it is. It's really like a psychological warfare. And as, and as the process starts and goes through, you, if, if it's a good match, you earn your, you earn your trust. Right. And and which is become, why it becomes easier. I flew up to New York to have but, uh, take him to dinner but, and talk about sacrament. The thing is, you know, just for oh, can I just please say a message for all yes, the bands please, please and do. artists listening to this? The thing is, is that like we had a great we were, we were a great match. Like and and a lot of things that we were talking about the fear and this and that is taught because there are many 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 circumstances where. Uh, Bands do get the wrong producer. Guys that have strong ideas or guys that think they, they know what is right, and it may not be, or guys that produces, I think, because they have a bigger discography, that they're better than the band or they know more. You know, um, you know it's up to you as a band to drill your potential producer. Be hardcore, ask them tough questions, and figure this out before you waste money and get into the studio. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of these disaster stories, like Chris in the beginning of this podcast was just talking about, oh God, all these scenarios where producers have ruined these records. Because, well, they weren't a good match. So it's up to you, you know, right? Like you fucked up with your first girlfriend and you learned more about what kind of girl you want next. And then you fucked up with her and then you learned more about what kind of girl you want next, right? It's up to you to... Be you know really tough. I, I I love it when bands play me examples of other bands that I did not produce. That it's a challenge for me. 
look what look what this producer did here. I I love when bands go to me and go, I'm a big fan of this producer, that producer, and this producer. And what do you think we could do to fix this? Or I mean, really, don't be afraid. No matter how big that producer is as a band, don't be afraid to really challenge them before you get into a studio to make sure you guys are the right match. I bring, I for, it's, it's, uh, for me, a, I say bring it on. It's a difficult balance, though, because you got, you know, the thing that you believe in, in the form that it's in, and then you have the objective opinion coming in saying, well, what if we do, you know, did this and this and that. And nobody that is in a band or in a position to record is kind of, well, nobody's starting out anyway, is has in the mindset of, Oh yeah, let's change everything for this dude because you're already taking the gamble on what it is that you've written yeah. and having that come across in a certain way. And now, you know, here's somebody else that you don't know that wasn't there the whole time that didn't really wasn't instrumental in, in writing the the tunes, saying, "Well, I think it would be better this way." And it, I mean, the, I remember actually saying this to Machine. I was like, "What the fuck do you know? Like, you don't know." You can't do this better than we can. Like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and that's a, it's a really, really difficult uh, starting out to swallow the concept of allowing somebody in to the point of changing your creation. But in, you, in that, in, in what we've learned in a very hard way and why I had to go romance <laughs> machine in, in New York it is that it makes a huge difference it to takes allow the right type of it takes the right type of band to to i think now now that i'm listening to all this it takes the right type of band to think like this type of band like slipknot a type of band like lamagata type of band like you know mastodon it's like it takes the right type of band because in today's day, there's a lot of guys that do metal that they have a style. So if you if you're a certain kind of metal band, this works a lot. They're like, oh, we want the the da 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 dude's sound. So they can that I see a lot of that. So basically, you've got producer engineers that are really do a thing and they do it really well, and then they can choose that application for the sound of their band. So they're choosing metal producers based on uh, that their known application, right? Yes. So, and that, so, so it's, you know, that, and that's, oh God, and Chris and Al, is that more than half of the average band's mindset or? So I'd what do you say think? that's well more than, way more than half. Okay. I think that's, right. the, I think that's the majority of bands. Right. Yeah. So not, you know, not everyone's a system of a down. Not everyone's a band like that that just wants to take those those risks and and you know not even wants capable of you know yeah I think that there's there's definitely uh, you know good bands that are just not exceptional that are still out there making records and touring and all that but like it I think it takes a band with the, both the exceptional talent and the exceptional mindset uh, to be able to pull that off. You know what the you know what the thing is is that Lamb of God knew that no matter what I said or how I came off in the beginning, Lamb of God knew that they were so good as a metal band, and they themselves understood metal and themselves so well that we weren't going to let this guy fuck it up, no matter what. 
And that inner strength and power, I know Tool personally had that when they went with their producer, who is is not a metal producer. And they knew that, look, this guy's really cool because he does all this world, world percussion, and he could add all this application. But we're not worried about this guy taking Tool out of Tool, you know? And Lamb of God are that band too. They weren't worried, you know, ultimately. They would just fucking out they just beat me up or out psych psych <laughs> psychology out manipulate me you know <laughs> so yeah it, it definitely goes the other way too hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast then you should know this brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really want to step up the game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 40 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. Machine, what would you say, because, okay, so that advice that you just gave to bands, which is, you know, whole, stand your ground if it's worth standing for um, and ask the tough questions. On the flip side, because, you know, there's a ton of producers and up-and-coming engineers listening to this, what would you say to a producer about when you're on the other side of getting grilled? And Chris, I'd like to hear your, your take on this mm. too. Like what, like, what is it when, when you're grilling a producer, like what are the kinds of things that would win you over and machine? What would you, what advice would you give to, to guys who are getting grilled so that they don't, you know, they don't get like defensive or emotional or, you know, whatever, you know, you could react badly when you feel like you're getting, uh, you know, hammered like that. Well, well, reacting badly would be a bad sign if I was the band, right? Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm, it's like an educational sit down. I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not asking any of these questions in an insulting matter, we're starting the record Just process. Business. We're starting the creative process. It's a board. It's like it's like a boardroom, and we're sketching out the screenplay. We're like, oh, like you know, how will this go down? So, someone getting defensive, 
bad as a producer, very bad sign as a leader, mm-hmm. very bad sign right there. Not cool. Like, uh, what else needs to be said? I mean, just don't come at the guy like mean, like, like, like Mark did. <clears throat> Where he said to me, what the <laughs> fuck do you think you know about our band that we don't already know? <laughs> right. But it's almost impossible to not have that reaction, especially as a young band, to have somebody come in and say, well, <clears throat> I have an opinion on your creation that uh, we're going to need to do this and this and that. Because, you know, starting out, whether it's your you know first demo, first record, second record, whatever, there's a lot of ego in that. And it's certainly easy to find what we were looking for at the time uh, and luckily didn't get, uh, which is, you know, an engineer that just kind of turns the knobs and makes it sound like everything else. And you stay in the mainstream of what everything else sounds like. It's very difficult to step out of that knowing that it's not so much a risk in our case in that there were no real major rewrites of anything, but it's still it's almost an insult when you have somebody telling you, I think this is better because you've been working on this product for so long and you believe in it. And it, it's really hard to kind of accept anybody else's thoughts on it because you believe that this is going to be, you know, special. It's going to stand out on its own. Really don't want any outside uh, information about it uh, because you believe in what you've done creatively is different than what's out there and you know it's it's fine as it is so it's a real risk uh on the band's part and that's not um, an advertisement for you know young bands to kind of be subdued and let a producer do whatever they want uh you should argue the point and that's yeah kind of really that's kind of really the whole yeah thing and is that like okay you have an idea let's record it and listen to it and uh even after one of the things um machine was actually smart enough to bring in a guy on our uh, records that we worked together uh, named Josh Wilbur, who we've worked with since. And one of the things that I really, really love about Josh and and Machine, because they shared this whole concept, was better is better. Like, don't argue what what's so personal to you. Let's just right. try this and let's all listen to it and let's think about it and put the fucking tape in your car or whatever. Like, let's just take a minute, non-destructive. This is not going out anywhere else other than this. Like, take a second and try to get out of your bubble for a minute and feel my idea. Now, if you don't like it, come back, let's talk, let's do it again in a different way, whatever. But just the initial idea of having somebody come in and say, no, you got I think it'd be better if you did this. Yeah, it's almost offensive. Yeah. Uh, Chris, young. Chris yeah. check it out. You know, like we talk about like, dis- like spectrums, like kids that have ADD or like various things, they're spectrums. Like, yeah. like, as far as all bands go, is on there's a spectrum for like a, a perspective of like, oh my God, serious talent, serious focus, obsession, work so hard, someone suggesting change, Lamb of God, this is going to be a major problem. To the other end of the spectrum, whereas I really like, I really like creative collaboration, blah, blah, blah. You, the band, Lamb of God, in its entirety is all the way on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, <laughs> right? Like, like yes. dude, honestly, and, and listening audience members, this, no. Most, not all bands are like that, Chris. Some bands, you know, 
they're up for it. They're really, they're really, they're really, really up for it. Like uh, the collaboration, you know, yeah, and, and, so, and everywhere in between, you know, you have to feel it out. Certain songs more, certain songs less. Right. And I think we certainly are um, more than ever before, but in the way that you, in a, in the concept of uh, if I'm going to produce a record and I come in and really have a global view of this and it's not, you know, maybe it's 50% there of, of what I'm seeing. Um, I think it takes a band questioning what they do in order to swallow all of that. So it's difficult on a yeah. production side to have a band that's 100% confident with what they're doing to allow somebody else in. So, I mean, situation kind of varies either way. And, you know, like on the first record, Ashes of the Wake, we were absolutely 100% confident. And not that we weren't on sacrament, but we realized the things that he was able to sneak in actually made a huge difference in our kind of growth at the time or the how it was perceived. And we're certainly willing to, you know, back down off of that 100% right. confidence it, to maybe was, 90% and, and it was allow it. <laughs> 90%. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And, and you were still cool and you were still brutal and you were still heavy and you were still credible and you were still lamb of God, right? I promised you that. I My promised you that's so that, what happened. Yeah. So, so what happened? So what was the what was the vision then for for the second record? Like when you guys got together to talk about what it would be um, and to figure it started figuring that out, what did you, how how did you guys voice that to each other? Immediate for me when I went up, you know, and told him like, okay, <clears throat> we've realized um, the difficulties that we put you through, and we'd really like you to come in as a sixth member of the band and have the same opinion. Uh, weight uh, that any other member would have. And I suppose that's kind of what got him in bed. Um, <laughs> but it was still difficult because when he came in that next time where we imagined like, hey, let's do this chorus twice or, you know, let's go back to the bridge or whatever. Now it's this grandiose, I know the guy from Nine Inch Nails. I, you know, this is going to be a, we're going to get a symphony in here. And, you know, it was what? huge <laughs> ideas. What symphony? Lies. That's not lies. You're talking about keyboards and shit. We, you know, it was like, oh no, shit, no, what do we do? No, no, no. You and me were talking about psychoacoustic ambient eerie shit like from movie soundtracks and how right. we were going to get that and like Operation Mindcrime type shit, That's right? It's funny that you say that because and, yeah, that was that was exactly the example that and we, we talked about. And we love that. We both love that idea. That's my, yeah, it's my favorite record ever. Um, we, and I too. do love it, but I, but it doesn't That was like fit. the only metal record I knew as a kid. It, it didn't, <laughs> right, it didn't fit us, but, no, but he, no, he, he, Machine came in with the concept of what's like the brutal version of this record. How do we make mind crime like brutal? And we already had the brutal riffs and now we're talking about kind of production stuff, which got a little scary for us because, and there still is uh, very much an insistence in the band that, you know, we'll never ever run tracks or um, not be able to perform uh the songs as they appear on the record, which is why, unfortunately, we're not able to do a couple of things that that we've written. But in the studio, it was like, oh, shit, you know what? I mean, we have one minute to 
in time to kind of paint this picture? Why wouldn't we paint it in its most beautiful way that we can? Maybe we can't do that on stage. And I appreciate the insistence of all the guys in the band of not wanting to run tracks. Um, but it's difficult in the process where you're allowing these concepts in that you know are kind of above the original idea of where we're going. So are we like shooting ourselves in the foot here? Is this going to be a hit song that we can never do? Um, but mm. that was, you know, on the second one, in that we made him kind of the sixth member, there were far more grandiose ideas uh, with the Sacrament record. And um, we took a lot of risk on that, but we also fought pretty hard uh, back on, and I think there was a definite discussion had that we don't want to put this on the record because we, we're not going to be able to perform this. And one of the things uh, Machine told us at the time was like, worry about that later. Let's make this the best it can be. And did you agree with that? I did. Um, because at that point, we've been doing it for you know, long enough uh, to understand that holding back a, a positive, creative idea is just stupid. Um, there's no reason that we shouldn't make this uh, everything it can be if the kind of internal punk rock vibe makes it impossible to pull it off. That's another story, and we can talk about that. But there's no reason we sh and it it wasn't that we went along with everything, uh, but um, it was far more appreciated to kind of take this to a level that you know even we didn't see or understand from the beginning, but hearing it back again in a non-destructive way, just, hey, check this out. Like, I, you know, I put this thing in here and this thing in here. It's like, holy shit, that's badass. I don't know how the fuck we're going to do it, but <laughs> why, aren't, why aren't we taking the best picture we can in that moment? But there, and remember, there was a rule where they could never be main parts. It was all psychoacoustics. Yes. It, it, was, it was never like, it could never replace where there was a guitar riff. Yep. Or so, 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 and I've applied that rule to other heavy bands. It's like, that's a we great can do, rule, actually. We can do ear candy. We can do ear candy, and I call them psychoacoustics for to things to create mood and tension. But uh, they're, they're, if they're not main parts, if it's not like a, a main prodigy synth line, um, then it's never missed. You know, I mean, you can choose backing tracks or choose not backing tracks, and right. it, the, the, the basis of the songs are still there. And that was, that was a rule we stuck by, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. still, there's a couple things, you know, we don't do because there might be slightly more than uh, the, the background stuff. But in there general... Was just like, what, there was just like, what was just like one outro where I just started remixing? But that was... Yeah. What was that? <laughs> fade was that? Line or something. I'm not sure. There was one cool um, fade out outro where I just started remixing and it made the record. It's real hard to fade out live. Is what I figured out. <laughs> what? It's what was that? It was like it had like bass drops, and bass drops were a new thing at the time. It, what was I think that? It was, uh, it was either one gun or faded line. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. All kinds of machine sounds and all that shit. So, machine. Yes. You said that Chris was probably the most metal guy in the band. Uh, did you find his dedication to the sound and desire for perfection to be a huge help when capturing drum tones and takes for the album? Yes. Uh, Chris was absolutely not only the most metal guy in the band, but Chris is the most metal guy I've ever met. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, Chris Adler, you. like you know, he largely. 
taught me so many things about metal. I mean, with through our experience. Well, I have no shame in saying that, you know? And uh, it's grown since then. And Willie, his brother, is very metal as well. You know, Randy's got some punk rock in him, and he's metal as fuck. And Mark has got, you know, he's got some swag in, swag in him, Almond Brothers and that, and he's metal as fuck. And John is metal as fuck, and he, likes loves hip-hop. Like me, the bass player, John. That makes sense. Yeah. Bass players. Well, yeah. What is that, Chris, with John loving hip-hop so much? I Man, I mean, both uh, him and Mark really and, and Randy yeah, on, the, on the last tour, you know, they were talking about all these... I don't know if they're fabricated or not, but like all these beefs with the uh, yeah. hip hop artists and all this <laughs> stuff. And they're like really into it. Like, and then he did this and then he said that. And it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Cause they're so friggin' smart with marketing themselves. Us metal bands should, we should all like diss each other like sports. <laughs> that, well, that actually, it, it works. It was, they do. It, yeah. It was a yeah. thing at the moment. Cause I, I kept overhearing all these conversations. I was like, well, why don't we just like, uh, you know, kind of fabricate something with, somebody on our level and kind of take us both up to a different spot, you know, but, uh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what what could that be? And it's like, it's not going to be gangsta. So like in metal world, what would that be? Um, it could like, be like the, like, like the black in, metal murders. How would you beef in metal? Like I cut out I, somebody's skull and make a necklace out of it. Like in Norway. I, I think, yeah, I think the best way would just be to say, you know, you, yeah, you know, oh, they, they're just playing tracks. Yes, of course. <laughs> so I guess so. The black metal example is too extreme. I guess. Yeah. 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 And, and oh well. I don't want to get killed. Yeah, that's un unfortunately when uh, at least uh, in the black metal scene, when bands beef, that's what happens. So I think it's better for bands not to beef. But I don't know. Over the years, it seems like when bands beef, like they will go to violence at points. Like mm. remember Amur and the Acacia Strain. Oh yeah, uh, they went a few years back, and uh, it, over the years, wasn't it Axl Rose and Vince Neil too? Yes, went to blows as well. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's just better not to beef. But uh, anyways, <laughs> yes, we back to do not promote violence here. Yes, definitely not. So back to uh, Sacrament. Uh, can you guys talk a little bit about the drum production? I know it was a deconstructed recording process where things, shells and cymbals were tracked separate and so on. And what was both of your experiences with that method like previously to that? And what were some of the learning moments and key takeaways from doing it with that method? Chris, you decide who talks first. <laughs> you just want to know how much I'm willing to give away about this, right? Um, <clears throat> so what we did uh, was, like you said, kind of separated everything. And that was a bit of a learning curve on my part because now we basically have hands and feet. And so meaning that they are going to be recorded at different times. Um, so I'd have to kind of deconstruct, take my feet out of it and just do the hands and then take my hands out of it and just do the feet. And it, that didn't come very naturally at all. Uh, so what we ended up doing, I think, um, at least for the, the feet part of it, and the same uh, the other way around, but for, for the feet part of it, basically covered the entire drum kit with as many pillows and blankets and stuff over the top of the cymbals, anything that we could do to totally make the hands uh, kind of silent, um, but still allowing me to play because it was it was really right. impossible to uh, kind of 
fully separate everything on on my end. Um, and then with the feet, we just took the kick drums away and put little practice pads with blankets over them so I could play the feet while I did the hands as well. And um, what's interesting is how in time, it slowly started leaning off and leaning off, right? Yeah, and then you were just yeah. tapping the floor, right? And then right. there were times where you could just completely... Yeah, there was a bit of uh, a learning curve. Depends. Right. But, a bit of a learning curve for me to take one of the, either of those things away. But slowly as we did it, got, you know, song two, song three, whatever, it became a little more natural. I didn't feel the need, uh, kind of a, not need, but the but muscle Chris, memory, everything that was going on. I didn't have to do the feet and I could get a better performance with my hands if I didn't. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I wanted to ask you that as a fan. Why, creatively, why, Chris Adler, would we do this method? <laughs> um, well, I think we were both very interested in not necessarily re redefining, but creating a, a unique uh, sound. And of course, you know, when you got to, at least when I was coming up, you know, you do your first demo, it's on a boombox or something, and then you get the cheap recording studio with the bad mics and everything's a bit mushy and you can't hear that splash symbol that I thought was so cool when we were writing the song and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And there's no way to go back in because now you've got, you know, snare in the overheads and you, there's only yep. so much you can separate uh, yep. in, in these things. So if you can, the more you can isolate them, the more you can kind of get a bit of a more, I don't know, pristine sound out of each thing and then be able to mix that properly um, as pieces of a kit as opposed to, you know, 10 mics that were on the whole time and you can't Absolutely. really pull one out. Right. And, and I'd like to add one thing to that as well. Is also, I noticed this is the first time we met. So this is back for our first record, right? Ashes, um, where we were... You know, this was before I even brought this up, and you were definitely going to be playing your whole kit in your mind when, on that record. And you did play, you did play uh, initially our initial tracking on that. If you remember, we did play in the whole kit, and then we started um, separating only certain things. But the idea started within the first ten minutes of me watching you play, like in the in the very first time we met in the very first pre-production. Your body language and your whole demeanor was you were putting, oh, like 80% of your mental focus onto your feet. Right. Like, and you were complaining about your feet and you're like, and I'm like listening to you play. I'm thinking, wow. I mean, his, the things he's doing with his feet are unbelievable. I mean, it's really the other snare drum. You know, it's like there's times where it's so complex with the 32nd notes to 24th notes, back to this, to complex things where it, there's so much more action happening down there than with his upper limbs. So as a result, I didn't like that, all right? I didn't, because as someone who knows how to capture great sounding drums, and I want to create chosen drums, I know that the way those drums are hit and the way they're tuned has a lot to do with how they're going to sound in the end. And I really didn't like that he was, he had to put so much focus onto his feet. There were, I felt that there were times where the way he was just, the action on the way he would snap his snare or go into a tom roll or, or, or hit, the, hit the bell of that ride just right, you know, the brain cells were so much on the feet. And so I wanted to be able to, that was my instant, I had that idea in 10 minutes. 
after meeting you. I remember writing you this like huge two-page letter <laughs> yep. and why we should do it <laughs> and no one's going to know and, you know, we're going to get this great sounding this and, and remember, you kind of half blew me off and then we did parts and then, and then for Sacrament, we were like, oh, this is game on, yo. Like this yeah. is, yeah. yeah. And yeah. he played, it's like he played the, all the parts in with his feet as we tracked them, as we, as we tracked the kick on Sacrament. You know, but the, it was then fully separated in the recording process as overdubs. You know something? Um, I've recorded a lot of great metal drummers at this point, and also in my band that had a dude named Kevin Talley, who's a great metal drummer. He's actually the person who introduced me to doing it like this. And I've done this sort of thing with great drummers through the years. And, you know, like, it's not because they couldn't play or anything like that, but because a human being only has 100% of focus that they can give to anything. And if you want them to put 100% into the hands, like really like go Pantera on the hands. Like it, it, it's not always going to coincide with putting a hundred percent to the feet. And that's just as important. Uh, yeah. So with, with great drummers, it, that's sometimes the solution. So you can get the best of everything because people there, there's, they're all humans. So they're going to have to, you know, divert their focus at times to different things that give them more or less trouble. And so that that's just, you're going to have fluctuating levels of intensity and focus on different parts of the drum set, depending on where their head's at. Yeah. Also what's going on that day. So I found that it, it works great with great drummers. It's actually a lot harder to do with shitty drummers. Believe me, it <laughs> like, doesn't, if you, if you can't yeah. play the part as a whole, you're not going to be able to dissect it very easily. No, definitely du not. Duly noted. I mean, and not only could he play th these parts as a whole, I mean, he had them like really no other human I've ever met. He has them like this pro inner programming brain where he can see all these things and naturally dissect. It's unbelievable to do this with Chris, this process. It was definitely weird. And I think, you know, any kind of band, at least coming up, uh, when when we were or my generation of bands, you know, no one thinks, oh, I'm going to go into the studio and not play my whole drum kit. Um, but I think the thing that really sold me on it was uh, there was a different uh, situation where Machine was working, I think, with one of the guitar players and one of, I think it was Mark, and he, Mark was real concerned about creating something that we couldn't replicate live. And... Um, Machine's answer to that was, uh, listen, you guys wrote the songs. Um, they're amazing. Why why spend the money to come into the studio and not paint the best picture of it that we possibly can? Uh, worry about playing live later. I mean, we're not going to put on, you know, a bunch of keyboards and tracks and, and all that kind of stuff. We're just, you know, padding this, doing that, whatever. And that made perfect sense to me. It's like, why wouldn't we allow this song to be kind of everything that we would want it to be, but can't really physically any of us individually or together necessarily do in that we're, like you said, wrapped up in our 100% focus of, of what we're trying to do. So I, I did like that idea, although it was a bit, you know, it's a bit weird to think because it's almost like um, there's an anxiety in that, like, you have to swallow the fact that it is going to sound better if you do that. And that kind of turns into, well, then does that kind of mean I'm not good enough? No, uh, it actually makes you a better drummer when you get back to back to doing it again, I think, because you've I learned agree. But to, to think the about process. it differently. 
to, but yeah. to start the process, you kind of have to surrender that ego of, no, yeah, I know what I'm yeah. doing. Yeah, I, I can play this shit. Here's um, the but, irony in what Chris just said. Like, we don't overdub guitars. Oh, 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 oh that's okay. Right. So we can't overdub drums? What's up? We overdub guitars all day. Oh, vocals? You want hey, a double? You want a harmony? Right. Oh, whoa, 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 wait want, a second. We can't do that. You want somebody else to sing it? Easy, easy. <laughs> it's true, though. It's, it's absolutely true. It, I, I mean, it's not that drummers can't play this stuff at all. It's just if you want it at that level of, you know, uh, at that level of quality, you, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. in order to get the job done. And that's like, all there is to it. It's really like not an argument the guitars over, and vocals. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I guess what I figured out was that it really wasn't an argument over um, kind of ability. It was what sound are we going for here? Like how how clean can we get everything? How, you know, basically how well can we paint the picture? And you know, insisting on maybe not overdubbing guitars or insisting on playing the whole kit. It's like you've written, written these songs, you practiced it for, you know, six months obviously we know exactly what we want now why don't we just make it sound a lot better than it does in your rehearsal space yeah mm -hmm. and like i like i said i can't say this enough the only guys i've been able to do this with are some of the best drummers in metal like i've not been able to do this with the guys that come in and like yeah. suck and can't play their songs or whatever that's you know that's a whole other thing but like the only guys that can pull this off with are dudes who bring it absolutely yeah so, uh, definitely. Yeah. Normally I wait till the very end to ask audience questions, but a lot of these audience questions are about what we're talking about right now. So I figured that just to keep things on topic, I'll ask some of them right now. Sure. Um, so here's one from David Velez. He says, the final drum sound on the record, how close is it to the original drum sound you had in your head before you started tracking? To put it another way, did you keep trying things until you got the exact tone in your head? Or did you keep thinking to yourself, we can make it better, we can make it even better, until you couldn't make it better anymore, <laughs> even though that wasn't you, what you were aiming for before you started? I ask because I don't think I've ever nailed what was in my head before I started tracking, but alas, I am a mere mortal. <laughs> <laughs> so my message to David is we never, ever finish mixing. We surrender. Does that make sense? Like I, yeah, it I gets taken I, away from you. I, I push and push and push. And I know where I, I've got the idea in my head, but I can't like, uh, you know, at this, the exact idea, I just know what I'm going for. And that goes for a lot of creative people, especially, you know, a perfectionist types of people like you see commonly in metal and certainly and definitely in Lamb of God. So it's like I've come to the point now where since, um, you know, when I started, there was it was very expensive to do to to keep trying and do recalls. Very expensive. Hiring big studios with big consoles, recalling. Now there's a different world where we can try and progress and progress. And I, I've adapted to that world. It had to. But, and that's why I just say it's like, look, I just realized that I will, so for, you know, to answer David, I, I, I'm always, always pushing to make it better and better. And I just realized with a lot of things I do that I have to have the personality and come to a point where I just say, I, it's not, I'm not done. I just surrender and it's cool. 
And I'm cool with surrendering. <laughs> yeah, and on my end... Um, Chris I, Adler, on the other hand, does not <laughs> surrender. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> it may not have been then. And I think you know, experience kind of builds this uh, ability to know that, you know, I'm listening to these performances back in the control room, and does it sound like the drum sound that I want on the record? Uh, no, it doesn't. But I know now that um, as long as we have these really clean individual things, that in the mix, there, there's going to be a ton of stuff done to this uh, to have it sit properly and have even everything out and maybe, you know, add, you'll be able to EQ, you know, each thing to a point where that's when, as I guess, coming from the drum kit into the control room, I know you have to know, uh, I didn't when we were kids, but you have to know that that's not, you know, the, the end. Uh, it's going to go from there into a whole nother process that's really going to kind of polish everything up. Not knowing that, and I think what um, was it David uh, just asked, um, you know, if you're kind of on a low budget and you do the drums and come into the control room, don't ask yourself right then, you know, if you trust the person that's going to be working it after this uh, or mixing it, um, if it's perfect for the record, because it's, it's just definitely not going to be. It might sound cool uh, in the, the studio speakers or whatever, but it's far from the final product. Yep. Yeah, I, I actually, that, I totally agree with that. Um, so here's another one, one from Colin Pompey. Can Chris or Machine go more in depth about the process of choosing tempos and feel of a song during pre-pro? The idea of shifting tempos is foreign to me. What goes into identifying a good spot for this to happen? Wow, that was, that was one of the coolest things that I remember from uh, both of the records that we did with Machine in that the band was very hesitant to set uh, a a BPM for a song or a part. And what Machine was able to offer us was that in pre-production, um, just kind of set up a very general kind of miking system in the room so we can get the idea of the song and then we can all sit and listen to it and talk about it, take it on, you know, burn it to a CD, take it in the car or whatever. But at the same time, there were these parts of the songs that, uh, you know, very, as, as the band played it, as we had written it, would kind of ramp down or ramp up and it really gave uh, to us uh, in straightening it out attempting to uh, it really kind of lost the feel like it was no longer um, that kind of ten tension of what is coming up and so what machine was able to do was take these um, demo tracks in uh, pro tools and kind of draw a tempo map to it so it it wasn't uh, kind of sterilized from the feel of what the band was naturally doing. And then we got to work from there. And then we got to play to that, right. those clicks. And then we got to even better it in a way, like, and listen back and debate over transitional tempos or, or let's, let's drop it, let's drop this part down. And we got to, you know, come back to pre-production with fresh ears and really know that we had the right energy flow before we were going to go into the drum studio, which is really nice. This is one, one really wonderful, one of the many wonderful things about pre-production is that you can, you can do all that and learn all that. And so. And yeah, even in the guys, you know, in, in the band's mind, we don't know that, you know, this part's coming up. So let's, as we're playing, it, you know, everybody increased by three BPM. Uh, but when it happens kind of naturally, then you can go analyze it, see it, and then either accentuate it or get rid of it if that's what the band, you know, doesn't want to do, uh, didn't realize they were doing, uh, that kind of thing. So it's, it's really nice to have that process uh, in play where you can 
really sit back. And I, I mean, I know most bands don't have time and money to have a producer sitting around for six weeks working on stuff like that. But we were fortunate in that we did. Technology's caught up. Even, I mean, it's crazy now uh, with elastic and all that shit. But uh, at the time, you know, we had the ability to do it and everything kept sounding better and better and better. So it was a really great experience. You know, if you think about it, lots of the best metal records of all time were done without a click. And lots of the energy on those records comes from, you know, speeding up in the drum fill into the next part or things or it getting slower when it goes to halftime or whatever, whatever it is. Um, a lot of these classic records have those natural ebbs and flows that playing to a click destroys. It just does. And so fluctuating these tempos per section of the song like that is the way to get around that around that problem i think yeah um, and i don't think we set anything up necessarily on purpose to to uh have that effect but we were able to capture kind of the the natural flow of the, the tunes in that way and you know use that to do exactly what you said not sterilize the whole thing yeah 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 and also like, you got to add one thing to this like chris is a player uh, like when you commit to a tempo, right? It feels good to him. He's a player that his his playing does not suffer whatsoever when he's playing to that click track. There are many, many drummers. They don't rehearse that way. They don't grow up that way. And they get to a studio and click track is new to them. And um, they they may not realize this, but they're hitting their, they start hitting their drums really poorly because uh, their brain's going to the click track. So this is absolutely not Chris Adler. Chris Adler is very comfortable with, with nailing it with a click. So, and, and so as we, you know, we would do a lot with designing that changing click and even, even, like, even the information he was given, was it cowbells on quarters or was it that, uh, did it slow down where it needed more information? So it put a cowbell and then a ghosting cowbell, you know, on eighths or whatever. Like it was always, it, it was very friendly to Chris to, to have that know, Ooh, we found the right one. We found the right thing, and it does not suffer in his playing whatsoever. So again, this becomes a big positive. And one of the things that I noticed about myself in working with Machine, and I was, you know, coming up first couple of records, I was scared to death of a click track. I thought that was, you know, I'm just a punk rock kid. I don't know what I'm doing. That's for the pros. That's for the guys in Modern Drummer and stuff like that. But in working with uh, Devin on the album before this, you know, he kind of insisted on it. But then working with machine it was great because a lot of times what i like in a click track is not kind of the standard thing like i would work with machine all the time to have the click track be in six as opposed to eight so it's i'm not on top of right. it uh, on the snare or on the kick and i could kind of feel that syncopation throughout the whole thing and in fact that came up with even different some different fills and, and drum parts because i was hearing this thing um, you know, kind of going on the track next to me. And it was it was really cool to have that um, concept of I'm syncopating with the click itself and then learning something else cool that I could do because of that. Yeah, I'm always designing. Like, my clicks don't come from the computer. They're, they come from, a, like, a, a sampler, a MIDI, a MIDI sampler. So I'm always, I have, like, a, an array of sounds an array of things, and I'm always programming the MIDI on the fly for every band, for every click track, for the, what, whatever feels great to enhance their playing. That's a big thank thing. Thank you. Yeah. You just, you know, you got, you got it. You got, man, you got it. Everything about what I do, and you'll, you'll see the studio 
next week design of it. Everything is about for the player, for making their experience feel good and feel comfortable and 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 play better. You should, it's all about everything. Every design of everything I do is always, you know, I play a little instruments, sure. I know what it's like to be on the other side, you know, and I listen very carefully to my musicians and what they what they need. And it's not too hard to figure out, you know, how to make systems that make people play great in a, in a recording uh, in general. And there is some just friction in that process in that, um, you know, when, when you start that, even though, you know, machine saying now, you know, I'm working to make sure that uh, the artist is comfortable. The artist before they get comfortable is obviously uncomfortable. So there's this, you have to trust uh, that person and know um, it can be frustrating if the, you know, for me, yeah. let's say the, the click is not on the time that I want. I don't want to necessarily admit that, you know, is that, is that a failure on my part or, uh, in even knowing, hopefully, that you know, machine wants exactly what he just said to happen. It's hard to say, like, hey, you know, this is, just isn't working for me because it, that's another blow to kind of ego or of your own, and like maybe how this producer is normally set up to do something, and you don't want to frustrate the process or spend any more time uh, than necessary when you know you're paying for it. So it can be a little challenging, but once everybody kind of realizes they're on the same team, it becomes a very friendly process. Yeah. It's that it's interesting you say that. I've had that issue with drummers quite a bit where the click track isn't right in their headphones and they won't say anything because they're afraid of rocking the boat. And right. it's like I wish they would say something. So I find that it's my job to be a detective and uh and really pay attention to their vibe and what they're saying and how how they're reacting so I can tell if it's okay in their headphones because <laughs> nine out of ten times they're not gonna say anything because they're just being polite, which is not is not good. But I get it. I totally get <laughs> right. it. So here's a question from Don Kendall. Um, so I guess this is more for you, Machine. Uh, when you set up drum mics for recording, what do you look for in drum room mics, specifically in metal? Is it just depth or vibe or something my simple brain hasn't thought of? Do you do a ton of experimenting or do you have go to a go-to starting point? I, I, uh, I don't have a go-to starting point. Um, I really, t- I really use my ears as microphones to listen to that given uh, drum room, that given environment, right? Because I have been in a lot of different studios, actually. So when we're talking about room mics, they're capturing the sound of the drums as they are interacting with the room. So the room is part of the sound. So the best thing you could do, on um, just this is like ghetto logic. You're going to hear this term a lot coming up from me. It's like ghetto-minded. Like It means common sense things. You know, your ears are microphones. So when you go into a new room, you could one of the greatest things to do is just take a, a snare and walk around and find a good spot for that snare drum in the room and then set up the kit and then just walk around um, high and low and find really good spots uh, where the drums sound in the room. Now, those are, I guarantee you, those are going to be great spots for microphones, right? And then, and then this took, t- 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 it's taken me years and I'm still developing this. It's just then the understanding. And this just takes time, dudes. I mean, just understanding the character of different microphones. What, you know, where, when, oh, the ribbon, oh, these coals or, 
these ribbons are going to be really cool down here. And, and then, you know, the many steps I can take with them later in the mix and so on and so forth. Or when an overhead, you know, um, you know, six feet, 10 feet above the kit uh, with this kind of mic is going, is, is going to give me this. That just takes time, experimenting, uh, trial and error. You know, you guys are lucky because you've got these great shows you know, like Nail the Mix and URM Academy and all this YouTube shit. And you can go just see what everyone does. And you get a big jump start on trying it yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I didn't have as much as that. I tried and failed and learned fast and got to use my ears more. And it's sort of my personality to just do more of that. Um, by nature, I'm just a scientist. Um, but... Uh, so I, but I got to answer Don's question. So, so Don, I got you sorted about how to figure out the room, right? Use your ear to, for certain spots as far as different mics. Um, you know, if you want vintage, like use ribbon mics, dude, that's the sound. That's the, that's the vision. That's the classic sound. They'll come in dark, right? And then you'll EQ high end into them and on purpose. And that's the sound. That's, that's the classic rock sound. You know, uh, four four fourteens, AKG four fourteens, just generally really common mics, and make great great room mics. I like them on figure eight often. Um, I often like putting them near a wall, so one side of the figure eight hears the wall as well. That's just a common thing that happens. But I inevitably I'm gonna I'm not gonna decide until my ears walk around the room and I get to pick spots. Is that right. a, is that enough? That was great. Thank you. Um, all right. Eric Burt is asking this to both of you. Can you talk about the symbol selection for this record? I've always struggled finding a balance of volume and tone, and the symbols on this record seem to have been made for each other in terms of the pitch intervals and volume. Particularly, the hi-hats sound heavy without sounding too loud. That's you, Chris. Yeah, well, I think it's very much the same process um, that Machine was talking about. I'm fortunate enough to have a endorsement with Minel Symbols, and go, in going into the studio, I, I let them know and see if uh, they can send me out some options. And we just kind of spend the time uh, in the room, you know, pick a particular song, or maybe a, a verse or a chorus or whatever, and kind of walk through that with, you know, as many options as we could get. And you know, one of the things that we came up with on Sacrament was even the hi-hats sound that he's talking about. Um, I had a different series of um, bottom hats to the top hat, meaning that not only we were trying different lines of hi-hats, we were taking the top of this and the bottom of that and uh, seeing what difference that kind of thing made. So just really a matter of time and just experimenting and hopefully having the resources to um, switch things in and out. And you're lucky to be endorsed by Absolutely one of my favorite simple companies. Yeah. Minolas are awesome. They really are. Yeah. I I didn't quite get it at first. And then and then I realized later, like with certain guys coming around, it was like with Minolas, like, oh wow. These are awesome. And to me they're huge. I don't remember them. I don't remember them as a kid. I just don't know why. I, maybe they were there. I don't. I just don't remember them. It was like they weren't. Uh, well, they were, okay. but they were uh, like student level stuff. You get them in the uh, music and art uh, store for kids that are just starting. And so the company's made, you know, huge uh, headway in the market. And um, my experience with them is, has been incredible. And when I started, actually, I was um, using all Zildjian's, and it took me, you know, 
I don't know, two years to even find the right zildjians that I wanted because I didn't have, you know, a box of things to swap out. I just have to go to the store, hit it in the store, sound yeah. good, take it back to the room, sounds like shit. So um, when Meinl approached me, um, I didn't have a full endorsement uh, with zildjian at all, but I was very hesitant uh, to go with Meinl because it had taken me two years to figure out which zildjian <laughs> symbols that I wanted. And <laughs> he said, okay, yeah, no problem. Let me send you some anyway and blah, blah, blah. And called me up and he said, what do you think of these? And I, I was honest with him. I was like, dude, these kind of suck. And so oh. he, sent, he sent me some different stuff. <laughs> like over about a year, uh, Chris Brewer at Vinyl um, was sending me all this different stuff just to try out. And every once in a while, I was like, oh, that does sound better than the uh, the Z16 uh, or, or whatever it was. Right. And slowly, they, I was kind of placing them in in my rehearsal space. And I said, listen, Chris, I, I think we've got everything pretty much nailed down. Like this is actually going through all these series of things. These are actually closer to what I have been hearing in my head the whole time than uh, the Zildjian ones are. But um, the, there's not a ride symbol in the bunch that sounds anything like uh, what I would want. And so he called me back about a week later and said, um, <clears throat> would you mind uh, flying over to Germany with me and talking to you know, the owners of the company about what's wrong with the ride symbols, and I was like, "Well, no, I don't, I don't mind, but who, like, who am I? Like, you know, I think we, our record had sold like thirty-five thousand or something. It's like I'm, I know you have bigger artists than me. What? He's like, man, I, I really believe uh, that you are gonna kind of make a dent in what you're doing, and uh, I really want to get you over there in front of these guys. And so I go over there, and it's you know, it's round table." big German dudes in suits and uh, like, so, okay, so what's wrong with the ride? And, <laughs> and uh, what I thought what was amazing. What is not metal enough about this ride symbol? <laughs> that they are made from metal. <laughs> yes, but, so I do not understand. So not, well, not only did they fly me over there and have this meeting, they then kept me there uh, for about, I think about a week and we went into the, the facility and tried all these different things where they were able to change alloys and sizes and all this stuff. And I was just so impressed with knowing that I was not, you know, a top tier uh, drummer or in a top tier band that they were making the effort in every way to improve what they were doing. And that was in shit 2003. So um, obviously it's come even further since then. And I, I, I think everybody makes, every symbol company makes a great line of symbols, but the relationship I have with them and their proof of dedication to their product really impressed me. And um, I wouldn't even consider changing ever. I, I don't think you can go wrong with any of the big ones, but uh, I can just say specifically with Meinl, uh, it took me a, a second to catch on because I guess my studio was endorsed by Zildjian and uh the drummer in my band plays Zildjian and my brother, who's a drummer, played Zildjian. So it was just, you know, that's what I was used to. And I had spent a long time getting to know what I liked, yep. you know, through in a recording with those. And But more and more drummers would start coming through that had minor endorsements. And so I was forced to start using them. At first, uh, I wasn't sure because it was different. But over time, it grew on me. Now I fucking love them. Like, they're great. I think they're, yeah. I think they're phenomenal. I just had to... I had to figure out what, you know, how to work with them. And I think they're fantastic. Yeah, it's basically, we're telling the same story. Yeah, that's just echoing it. So, yeah. all right, here's one from Jason Alford. Uh, whose idea for 
whose idea was it for the typewriter sample on the kick? That was brilliant. <laughs> it blew me away. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> All right. I mean, so look, here's the thing. In my, in my planning and education for recording Lamb of God, I was, you know, given, I asked for records to learn about metal. And, um, one, and one of the ones about like, when I, in the category of records to learn about um, production, I go like, who, who's the most blind, mind-blowing metal production? One of those was the Spam Meshuggah. And I was very, very envious of their kick sound. And I, and it was so cool sounding to me, and it was so signature. The most important thing, so signature to that band. And I, I just, I wanted so badly for Lamb of God to have that. I wanted, I thought they were important enough. And Chris is a legacy drummer in the making. I'm like, I think it's really important that Chris has a signature kick, such an important instrument in metal. So, and we tried so hard. I mean, Chris and I, we like taped things to the kick drum. There were, there were so many failed experiments to, to finding what's going to be our signature thing. So when you put on that Lamb of God record and you hear this awesome drummer, you know it's him. Um, and it's all based on failure. And basically, and then I just started listening to this, you know, this attack, I mean, I sampled this, I sampled that, I tried taping this to the kick drum, that to the kick drum, and I just realized to myself, I was like, you know, a lot of this, what this actually is, is when I listen to various records, that attack portion kind of sounds like one of those old school typewriters, like that's kind of what it sounds like. So I was like, let me go to the internet and download it, tick, 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 <laughs> I was like, and then I blended that in, and um, that sounded uh, really metal to me. You know, in with the with the regular kick drum sound, and um, and slightly unique, and yes, it happens to be a, a an old school typewriter sample. Wow, I thought the question was facetious. <laughs> did, did you know, Chris? Did you know that? So, I, did you know that I did that? Uh, I knew we had talked about you had like a you know a millisecond of uh, glass shattering. You know, this kind of sound design that didn't work. Uh, Right. And yeah. what Machine and I actually had a conversation about this uh, last week where he said basically the same thing. You know, I was really going for that Meshuggah sound, which, of course, I love as well. Or your um, own Meshuggah sound. But, but like, yeah. Right. Well, what, what we got to, even with what Machine just said, was getting to that what ended up being a failure. And he was telling me, you know, I kind of feel bad. I, I wish it was. And I was like, dude, like, it's not if we had achieved it that exact sound, then there would be nothing special about what we did. So our, our failure was actually the biggest success we could have had. Mm. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. As many so, things are, as how many things are invented, by the yeah, way, by failing. Yeah, sure. And you get something else. But yeah, I mean, I, was, I wasn't, you know, Masuga was a guide. Uh, and it was a guide because it was so standout and so signature. But the intent was never to copy Meshuggah. I just wanted, you know, the topic was to have our version of a signature sound. Right. And well, that had the presence and the character, like how that one was just so cool. You know, it was a challenge. did it. Yeah, definitely mission accomplished on that. Eh, so Sorry. <laughs> I think so. so uh, 
All right, so moving on past Sacrament, um, a few things I just want to cover. And Chris, you said you had some sort of announcement, so I want to make sure that we don't forget that. So That's I want to, uh, I'm just asking, wondering if you want to do that now or later. Now's fine. Um, so, so what's on your mind? Well, in that um, I'm not very good at sitting around um, doing nothing. So if the band's not on tour, if we're not writing, we're not recording, you know, I'm still playing a lot of drums, going to the gym a lot, but you know, I kind of find, you know, a lot of downtime and I don't want to, um, you know, allow myself that and get in trouble or something. So I've been thinking about it for a while and just kind of waiting for the right band to kind of come around. But uh, I worked for a long time, uh, a product manager and digital sales guy at Epic Records is a guy named Jason Leckberg. And, oh, I know Jason. Yeah. He's great. He's been on the podcast, actually. Oh, cool. And, you know, we keep in touch, you know, once a month or whatever. We send each other a list of bands like, oh, have you heard this uh, kind of thing? And then we'll kind of debate back and forth. And I guess it was about a month ago I was uh, having one of those calls with him. And we both at the same time said, yeah, I don't really have a list this time. I just have one band. And he's like, oh, that's crazy. Me too. I thought, well, so the band that I was referring to is is this band called Discarnate uh, from the UK. And I- Oh, they're sick. Dude, I have not had goosebumps like when I've listened to their newest record since I heard Symbolic. Um, and every time I listen to it, it's still like just goosebumps over and over. So he and I are talking about this. We, we both independently go out to see the band who totally crush it live as well and get to know the guys. They're super cool. They're super fun. And, but just talking to him about- you know, the things Jason and I know about, and they're still a fairly young band, and realizing they really don't have um, a team of any kind uh, working with them. And the drummer's doing much of the um, the work. They are signed uh, to a small label in Florida, <clears throat> but uh, there's really not anybody uh, kind of behind them. So uh, Jason and I decided to uh, start uh, a management company just for this band. Um, it's called Kintsugi Management, and uh, we're heading down to Florida to talk to the label people. We've had meetings with uh, everybody else uh, around the they're in the UK where they are, and the people they have over here in the US. And we're starting it up, taking them on. Um, we've done the deal with them, and really looking forward to to working with these guys over the next couple of years. In that we both know most of the potholes you know, around the world, uh, both in business and touring. And I really want to help these guys because they are incredible and they're still friends. And I see them, you know, playing to 12 people for a bag of chips. And it's like, man, that, that ship will burn you out so fast. And there's so much talent in this band that I want to kind of help ensure that they have uh, the ability to have somebody else uh, kind of doing the fighting while they can continue to be friends as long as possible and keep writing stuff. That, that's awesome. You know, Jason actually showed them to me. Um, maybe a month or two ago, uh, I heard them and I, whatever song it was, I listened to it like 10 times in a row and was like, this is fucking great. And I hit him up immediately and was like, we, I want them on Nail the Mix. I don't care if they're not huge. I want them on Nail the Mix. And um, Jacob Hansen, the guy who mixed it, he's phenomenal too. Um, so like they, for not being big, they sure found a great mixer. Uh, but I hadn't heard something that fresh in a really long time. Yeah, it's like they have a, you know, I don't want to continue the process of more and more subgenres, but they've got this kind of 
death groove thing going on and they totally own the lane. I mean, there's nobody else doing it uh, like this and just, the songs are just undeniable. It reminds me of like a modern, you know, remember Impossibility of Reason era Chimera? Yeah. Like it reminds me of like how heavy that was for its time, but like a modern version with death metal vocals yep. with like some dying fetus in there. Like it's really groovy it in, is. in a good way. So that's, that's it. We're really excited about getting to work with these guys and uh, hopefully everybody will be hearing a lot more about them now that they've got some uh, muscle behind them. That's killer. Um, so speaking of that, uh, you're not liking to stay idle. Uh, one thing that I've heard about you for years now, like I, way back to like even 2005 when my band almost signed to Prosthetic and EJ, uh, EJ, the main guy at Prosthetic, was telling me about Lamb of God. He would basically talk about you a lot. He'd be like, Chris is the business guy in that band. Like that guy's a brain. Like that wouldn't, nothing would be happening unless without his, uh, without his mind. And he'd like say things like that. And then, uh, and I paid attention to that. And so I remember a few years later, like the producer edition or whatever it was called for Sacrament came out. I was like, wow, that's a really good idea. That was way ahead of its time. And I just paid attention to Lamb of God marketing. And I know that there's a whole, there's a whole team behind it, but obviously, you know, I, I also knew that none of that stuff happened without the band. Uh, you know, none of that happened independently of the band. And so, and the guy told me repeatedly that uh, you were the guy in the band who was behind a lot of that stuff. And so I followed you and so you're, avid clinician and uh i heard that you and your wife i don't know if you guys still do this had started a company that did, that ran fan clubs yep for bigger bands um i remember hearing about that in like 2008 2009 and so i've always uh, i've always heard that you were a very entrepreneurially minded uh musician and so i just wanted to talk about that a little bit and see if you define yourself that way or where it come, where that even comes from. Uh, yeah, I'm blushing. Um, certainly part of it is not wanting to just be idle, but um, it's from the outside, I'm sure, um, as we all know, it's this whole thing is a lot more glamorous than it is on the inside. So a lot of the things uh, that I got into were certainly creative ideas, but they were out of some necessity of having either the band. Uh, stand out a little bit and doing things a little bit differently, taking tours, putting tours together that some people would say, you know, didn't make sense, but it allowed at the time uh, kids that were coming to the, to our show to not see basically the same band four times in a row, uh, having other bands on the bill and um, also expanded our fan base quite a lot by turning their fans on to you know, kind of who we are. Um, but for me personally, I think, you know, then I went into, I uh, wrote a couple books about kind of the making of, of some of these albums and have always been, you know, answering the phone to uh, working with other projects and, you know, doing what I, whatever I can, not only to keep myself busy, but because, again, it's, it's um, as big as, you know, Lamb of God is or however big you think they are, um, you know, we are all kind of just a couple days away from, um, you know, getting back on the roof or being a bartender or um, fi finding the second job. It's just really by the time um, everything kind of trickles down and then is divided by five, uh, there's just not a lot there. So 
you know, I got to eat. I got to pay the rent. I want to feed my kid, make sure she's, you know, got her school supplies and shit like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's far from, uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Uh, I have to keep busy really out of necessity. But yeah, I mean, sure. But a lot of musicians in, at similar levels or a little higher or lower or whatever, you know, a lot of musicians also have families and lives, but sure. don't, don't do all that stuff. Like they just rely on their bands, which I think is really stupid, but, uh, but I've learned that I can think is that it's stupid, but I think that some people are just wired to be entrepreneurial and some people aren't, and you can't, you can't make someone be that way. So, uh, I think I just think that some people just have that in them, and I think and we, some don't. We may have talked about this a little bit um, earlier, but um, you know, and even talking to my mom or dad about the same kind of thing, you know, I've always told them that um, my brother Willie is incredibly talented. Uh, in fact, he has all the talent, but he didn't really get any of the motivation, and I got all <laughs> the motivation and very little talent. So I was motivated to not only kind of figure out how to play the drums and do it really well, but that obviously carries over and spills over into every other aspect of my life where <clears throat> the, I don't know, man, I, I think you're right. I guess I'm wired that way. I just can't sit around and play games or, or whatever. I'm, I'm very interested in finding a, a way to navigate uh, this creative endeavor and, you know, keep us all afloat. Uh, do you, uh, I, one thing, I know that it's like this for me, and I've talked to a lot of people who are also wired this way. But I mean, honestly, I I have vi big visions for the future. Always have, and have always followed the whether or not people told me they were unrealistic. If I logically could see them working out, if I could, if I could reconcile it with my own uh, doubts, but. At the end of the day, one of the biggest motivators for me is abject fear that <laughs> yeah. this could all fall apart and I'd have to get a job or, you know, like bad shit would happen. Um, you know, life would fall apart. Like it's just this never ending fear of of just things going away. Right. Yeah, I absolutely have that too. I mean, there's no 401k in this. There's no monthly salary. You know, it's, it's really based on whatever work you put in, hopefully uh, you're able to take something out. But uh, yeah, like you said, if something goes wrong, somebody breaks their wrist, uh, falls off a bike, like whatever, it could be, all be over very, very quickly. Hires a hitman to kill their wife. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, so I'd like to just interject for like, for anyone like listening that's thinking about being more entrepreneurial, right? Because like in Chris's story about Willie saying, you know, saying he's not motivated, but uh, like, I mean, Chris, he's motivated. Like he has times where he's, where he's more or less motivated. But um, I think when, because I, I see, I see so many, so many guys and they're, they're getting into so many things. I just want to say like. A, a one from experience and life experience, one big key thing that was left out here was one's ability to handle multiple moving parts. So some yes. people are motivated and some, some people are like me are extremely motivated, but then there has to be the CEO mind factor, which is the ability to handle multiple moving parts. 
right? And that doesn't mean that you're stupid or not because we, you have to be very OCD and very super focused if, say, you wanted to be a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist. You really, you couldn't even pass the courses or get there. But some people, those same people could not be CEO of a company and deal with multiple moving parts and see more things from the outside or be able to surrender faster or blah, blah, blah. And that is another type of smart person. So yeah, in addition to like motivated, it's one's ability to, to, to be able to juggle like that, to be able to, their brain wired to be able to handle those multiple moving parts. I've heard uh, it referred to as uh, T-shaped, I'm going to probably say this wrong, but either T-shaped people or I-shaped people, um, whereas an I, an I would be, like you said, the brain surgeon or the guitar virtuoso or something. Right. Like someone who all they can focus on is that one thing, like the one thing that they live for, that they put all their energy into. And if that one thing fails, they're kind of fucked, but they're better at that one thing than anybody else. And then you get the T-shaped person, which is more like what I am, where pretty good at, at like one main area, yeah. which is, you know, music. Like I'm a pretty good guitar player, but never even close to as good as like the really great ones. I was pretty good at mixing and engineering and all that, but never as good as like the really great ones. But I can envision multiple things happening at the same time in the big picture and know how to get things going and all that. And the, yeah, the, that's what you mean by the CEO mind. I'm pretty sure is that yeah. is what they would call the, the T-shaped person. Right. Where right. there's the one main thing, but then there's several other things that they can do as well. That I mean, maybe they're not the best in the world at them, mm-hmm. but they know how to put them all together in a way that works for and, moving things forward. Right. And then you've got Chris Adler, who is the best at one thing and T-shaped. So what's up with that, Chris? Freaks. <laughs> what are you, fucking Martian? <laughs> free, freaks in nature. <laughs> well, I don't get a lot of sleep, so. Yeah. <laughs> And you're motivated. <laughs> and I, yeah, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't. And I didn't you're so motivated, it's scary. <laughs> I didn't mean to insult Willie. Obviously, he's motivated to be an uh, incredible yeah, yeah, guitar yeah. player. It's just it, in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he just doesn't want as many moving parts. And a lot of, I mean, it's a struggle. I mean, none of it's easy. So um, if, you, if you are that I-shaped person and things are going well, you know, why create the frustration of trying to do something else. Yeah. And it's it's hard to, if you want to be like, say you want to be a guitar virtuoso, like there really isn't brain power for anything else. I mean, you have to, you got to go all in. Like you can't really do anything else. Right. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's the same reason for why the guitar virtuosos are not like the best writers, for instance. It's not that they're not talented enough. It's just they chose to take those hours of the day that they have for creativity and put it into guitar playing. That's, you know, they can't really focus on business too much, like, or else they're not going to get their practice in. Right. And if they don't get their practice in, they're not going to be the best. So, and that's something that uh, people ask at my clinics and something I started talking about where I get asked a lot, like, who do you think is a, you know, the best drummer in the world? And I always say, I, I don't, I don't know his or her name, but I'm pretty sure they're in their mom or dad's basement practicing 24 hours a day and no one's ever going to know who they are. Right. There has to be a point where you kind of open things up a little bit. And maybe that is a bit of a detriment to being, you know, the world-class 
uh, player. But again, what's the point if you can't get out there? Yeah, uh, kind of no point, in my opinion, at least for me right. personally. I mean, right. there's some self-satisfaction, but um, that's, yeah, it's not going to get you very far. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think that I saw you say somewhere that for you, drumming isn't so much about drumming. It's more about get it, like means to an end and being able to like perform the stuff that you're working on rather than like the person who just like is all about drums all day long, 24 seven, doesn't matter what, just drums, 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 drums. Like obviously you worked your ass off on drums, but it was more like I'm playing these songs on this tour, like get awesome at these. Um, is that accurate? Did I, did I read that correctly or am I inventing that? I'm not sure <laughs> uh, if I've uh, said that, but I, I've never really, I think we talked about this earlier as well, Drums really aren't my thing. I don't have a favorite drummer. Well, I guess Stuart Copeland would be, but um, I really play drums the way that I wish I was able to play guitar. Uh, it's not necessarily my passion. I mean, there, there is a lot of pride in what I do, and I want to be as good as I can, but it's almost out of necessity because that, that's what this band needs. And prior to this band, uh, I was playing guitar and bass. So starting playing drums in this, it was, well, we need a drummer, and then me not wanting to be embarrassed as a shitty drummer, so busting ass uh, to, to put that together, but also keeping my um, day job, which at the time was an IT job, and you know, blowing up the band online as much as I can on all the IRC boards back in the day, and starting to talk to uh, labels, management companies, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, Chris Adler is really entrepreneurial. Matter of fact, he the we we got the he got the deal on Epic, and that's when we met in the hotel and then like for literally kept his IT job, like literally right until I think I very first came for pre-pro for the very first record. That was the day or the week he quit his, his whole other job, like full-time job while he was inventing with, you know, modern day social media techniques and booking techniques and all this entrepreneurial stuff on how to actually break this span. It's, it's, Chris deserves so much of the uh, the reason, the responsibility for this thing starting. Uh, Absolutely, from all I've learned from all these guys. Thanks, man. Well, the, well, that's ex that's exactly what I mean. Then, like, uh, there that type of person um, is not going to spend fourteen hours a day on an instrument. They're gonna they're gonna spend enough time until they can do what needs to be done. Like so that yeah, so that you don't embarrass yourself and so that you can take pride in it, but not to the point where it's getting in the way of all these other things that you also have to do in order to fulfill the big picture. Cause someone like you sees the big picture in a way that other people don't. Right. And yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if I have, you know, an hour of free time, I'm not going to sit around doing flamadiddles. Uh, yeah, I want to make sure I get know how to play the song and then let's see how we market this in other ways and kind of keep up with what's going on. Yeah, the, the thing that the T-shaped people have that the I-shaped people don't is that vision and the understanding for, yeah, for how to work all those different elements. So yeah. without them, nothing moves forward. And so it's, uh, you know, you they both need each other, I think, but yes. uh, but it's not, this whole jack-of-all-trades thing is total bullshit, in my opinion, uh, because you need someone who can, who has their hands in all pies, who understands where it's all going, where it could be, what it what it will be, all those things. Uh, otherwise, nothing happens. Right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely you, have a, a vision 
of you know a, the, a larger band more so than I have a vision of uh, you know BPMs on my feet. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes total sense. That's that's what I was curious about. Well, looks like we're out of time. Um, I know that we could probably keep talking for another few hours, but uh, I want to be respectful of time considerations. And this has been a long podcast. I want to thank you both for coming on, being so open and just taking the time. It's very awesome of both of you. Thank you. I'm flattered to be asked. It was fun. And you're very welcome, sir. Anytime. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Isotope. We craft innovative audio products that inspire and enable people to be creative. Visit isotope.com for more info. This episode is also brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and subscribe today. 